Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guy. I am Scott Powell, uh, and I am uh, solo this week here in the little rectory basement studio. Uh, Father Peter is on a priestly convocation with all the priests of the Archdiocese of Denver. Please say a prayer for him and all the priests up there. Um, But I didn't want to give you another rerun because I know we've been doing that a lot lately, so I wanted to join you today, even if it's just me. So hopefully this won't be uh, quite as long of a podcast because I have no one to, you know, banter with, but that's okay. So we are going to be talking just for a few minutes about the fourth Sunday of Easter. And so the readings we're going to be looking at today, uh, our first reading is coming from Acts of the Apostles, which we've been in all of Easter so far, really. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, which is coming pretty close after what we looked at last week. Our responsorial psalm is Psalm 118, verse 1, then 8 through 9, 21 through 23, 26, 28, and 29. And the response itself is coming from verse 22, which is a verse that you've probably all heard before. Then our second reading is coming from the epistle of John, the first letter of St. John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, and our gospel is coming from the gospel of John. This is a, a John-heavy Sunday, but we're looking at the gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. So those are our readings. Um, like I said, this is going to be, hopefully, depending on how much I yak at you, but hopefully a little bit of an abbreviated podcast, but word about Acts of the Apostles. Where we left off last week, um, either hopefully you heard it in the liturgy, but maybe you tune into the podcast as well. Where we left off last week, Peter, I believe it was Peter, I'm turning there now, Peter was making a speech in Jerusalem. And one of the things that has just happened in chapter three, so the chapter right before where we are now, Peter healed this, uh, who's called a lame beggar. And it's this really beautiful scene where there's this man who cannot walk, who's standing in what's called Solomon's portico, this area of the temple. And he's there and he's asking for money and for people to help him out. And it says, it's Peter and uh, he's with John. Oh, Peter and John, how convenient. John is still here and we have a lot of John's writings this week. But Peter and John, they see him and, you know, the guy looked up at them hoping for an offering, hoping for some money. And Peter says to him, silver and gold I have not, but I give you what I have in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. I'm sorry, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he, he got him up and he was made strong. And this guy, it's beautiful, Simon uh, Peter begins to give this speech to all the people that are gathering around, seeing this wonder that's taken place. Like, what is going on? And Peter begins to give this speech of, okay, now I've got your attention. Let me tell you how this happened. And he, you know, he says, it's really not about me. It's not this, this magic ability that I have to make this guy well. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And you know Jesus of Nazareth. You probably heard about him when you were crucifying him. And when he came here into the city and everyone welcomed him. And then a few days later, we're shouting, crucify him. And our leaders and our, our teachers actually delivered him up to death. And he tells the story of salvation history in the sense of how Jesus is the answer to everything we've been waiting for. And he had been coming and this was finally him and we didn't recognize him. And you were ignorant of this, but there's still forgiveness for you because that's who Jesus is. And that's how this guy has been made well. And all the while, as Jesus is giving this beautiful speech, the guy is literally clinging to him. He's holding on to him because this grace that has emanated from Peter is so profound that the guy can't let go, which is 
it's really kind of a beautiful image of the church itself. When the world gets, you know, hard and confusing and we're, we're, we stumble sometimes, we need something to grab onto. And God has given us, Jesus has given us this church that we get to actually grab onto like this guy is doing with Peter. And where we kind of pick it up this week, so Peter has given this beautiful speech. And um, we pick it up in verse 8, but I'm actually going to read the beginning of chapter 4 just to put it in context. And what uh, Acts says is this, it's chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking, so this is Peter and John, they're giving this speech. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, the captain of the temple, by the way, it's like the chief of police for the temple precinct. But they, and uh, the, ca- the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So the priests, the Sadducees, and the, the police that are actually policing the temple precinct, these are people who have pretty good reason not to like what these guys are saying. The priests and the Sadducees, by and large, are the people who sort of run the show in Jerusalem. They're the powers that be. They're the ones that keep the temple functioning. And by and large, they're held in power by Rome and by Caesar, who essentially pays their paychecks and keeps them, you know, more or less in the lap of luxury. And so these are a group of Jewish people who really The idea that a Messiah has come to defeat our enemies and set us free and do all these wonderful things would not have been very exciting news to guys like the Sadducees and the chief priests, or the the chief priests and the priests, because they like the status quo and they like where things are headed. Now, we know, of course, the Pharisees, who are sort of another political group in Jerusalem, they don't like Jesus either because Jesus has called them out and called them hypocrites. And the Sadducees and Pharisees hate each other. But it's amazing as you read the Gospels that the one thing that unites them is their hatred of Jesus. But here, this is the powers that be. And they're seeing Jesus riling up the crowd. And they're like, this is not good. And this is creating unrest. And if word gets of this up to Caesar, you know, or even the Roman authorities, then not only did we get into trouble with this Jesus guy, now they're still talking about him. We thought we had shut them up. And now they're getting louder and louder. And this has to end. And so they, they came. And it literally says in Acts that they were annoyed. Because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day because it was already evening. Being already evening means it was too late to basically put them on trial. The, the gates were probably closed and locked up. And you can't do a trial until the next day. But they want to accuse these guys of trying to rile up everybody. It says in verse 4, But many of those who had heard the word, they believed. And it says the number of men who came, uh, the number of men came to about 5,000. Which is Luke's, Luke is probably writing Acts of the Apostles, of course. It's his little um, measuring stick for what the status of the church is. If you remember on Pentecost, there were 3,000 people who were baptized and became believers. Now the number, it says, is up to 5,000, which means in the course of this preaching and seeing the healings taking place, 2,000 more are coming on board and the church is growing in number, which kind of helps you to see why the, fair, why the Sadducees and the, the leadership would be kind of freaking out about this. So it says the next day, verse 5, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem. It talks about Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas and his family and the whole group that was there. This is a, an historical marker for Luke so that you know exactly where we're talking about in history. And it said they had Jesus in their midst. Or, I'm sorry, they had Peter and John. And they said, by what power or by what name are you doing this? Who do you think you are? What authority do you have to rile up the people? And this is where we step into it in our reading this week. And it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, and by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. 
he's pointing the finger right at them, who God raised from the dead. By this, by him, this man is standing before you well. And here's, I think, the operative verse for our readings this week. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the cornerstone. And there is no there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven and on earth among, among men by which we will be saved. Now, one of the things Peter is trying to say here is, this is not about me. This is not about me grandstanding and doing miracles and trying to get attention, if that's what you think I'm up to. I do nothing but by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And quite frankly, one of the things that Peter makes very clear as he goes about his ministry is, I don't care what you do to me. And Peter's constantly being thrown in prison. He's getting beat up. He's getting put on trial. And every time he bounces back up because he says, it's not me. It is he whom I proclaim, who is Jesus of Nazareth. And you have to be, you know, if you're Peter, you have to be asking yourself, my gosh, I keep getting thrown in prison. I keep getting beat up. I keep getting rejected. Am I following the wrong guy? Did we be back in the wrong horse somehow here? But what he's recognizing, and he quotes Psalm 118, which is actually the psalm we have in the liturgy. And he says, no, if I'm getting beat up and if I'm getting rejected, that's a good sign that I'm on the right track. Because Jesus himself was the stone rejected by the builders. And he's reminding the Sadducees and the religious leaders of this step in salvation history and their precise role in it. It's interesting what Psalm 118 says is that, it talks about the stone which was rejected by the builders, which is a reference to the leaders of Israel and is put in kind of an abstract way. But what Peter does is he applies it in the second person singular. He says, oh, you know, Psalm 118, that verse that we've all heard about the stone being rejected by the builders, but now it's become the cornerstone. Well, you guys, and literally they're the ones who've actually been overseeing a big, massive construction renovation project on the temple. He says, yeah, you're renovating this temple and you guys are big shots and you got all your contracts and you got your workers going on. You are the, you know, head of the show. Well, guess what? You are the builders that Psalm 118 prophesied. And you are the ones who have rejected the cornerstone. You think this temple is important, this brick and mortar temple that's standing here that I proclaim in the midst of. But that's not the temple. Jesus himself is the temple, the stone that you rejected from the temple that you were constructing, not just the brick and mortar one, but you're supposed to be the leader of the people. You were supposed to be building up God's temple of his holy people, and you've rejected the cornerstone of that temple. He takes salvation history like he'd been proclaiming the previous day, and he makes it very present. And he says, you guys are the ones precisely doing this, which is a, a actually a good segue into our responsorial psalm this week. Which, like I said, is, is, it makes sense that the liturgy has put this in there because Peter has quoted it in his speech before the, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. But I, I went back and I just did a little, you know, reading in context makes such a huge difference. And I read a little bit, you know, the rest of Psalm 118 just to kind of remind myself. And I just want to read a couple of words of there, a couple of lines of this, maybe not the whole thing, but... And I don't even have that much more to say about it other than I want you to hear the rest of Psalm 118 and put it in the context of what's happening here in the liturgy. It begins by saying, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And it says, let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. And I was struck by that thinking of 
Peter and John, for example, here in Acts of the Apostles, who are getting beat up, who are getting thrown in prison, who are being cornered, who are being questioned and prodded and put on trial. And, you know, again, you get the sense from reading through Acts of the Apostles, they're doing it with great joy and they're doing it fearlessly. But I wonder if there were those moments they were like, oh my gosh, this is this is getting old, or this is getting a little freaky, or I wonder if we're about to lose our lives. And I think they're willing to do that, but gosh, that would be a scary thing. Any kind of persecution is frightening. And I wonder if they were reminded of that psalm because it is on Peter's mind because he quotes it to the Sanhedrin as the psalmist is saying, don't forget that God's steadfast love endures forever. Let all of Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let all those who fears, fear the Lord that his steadfast love endures forever. Because Peter and John might be thinking to themselves, man, how long is this going to go on? And the answer in the psalm is, it doesn't matter because God's love is always going to be there. His protecting, his never failing, his unquenching love is always going to be our safety net. And even if that means losing our life, his love will always be there to catch us, which is comforting words. And so in response to that, the psalmist goes on. He says, out of my distress, I called to the Lord and the Lord answered me and he set me free. With the Lord on my side, I do not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side to help me. I look in triumph on those who hate me. All of these lines, I mean, they're speaking to what's happening to the apostles. When I'm in distress, um, he's going to set me free. Well, they're in prison. They're in distress. There's a lot of people who hate them. And the response always is, the Lord's going to protect me. What can be done to me? What are they going to do to me? God's got me. It's okay. The Lord is on my side. Uh, Verse 8, it says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in man. And the reason that Peter and John have the confidence to stand up in the midst of the people is because their confidence is not in what the powers that be are going to do to them. It's not in what their crowd is going to say in response. It's not even in the fact of how many people are going to convert because they hear this. It's simply in the fact that I know who my God is. And I move forward in the world accordingly. Even if no one hears what I have to say, even if I'm thrown in prison of it, even if I get beat up, I will proclaim the Lord. Not because I'm so great, not because I've done anything to deserve it, but because I know who my God is and I put my confidence in him. It goes on in the Psalm verse 10, all the nations surround me and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surround me. They surround me on every side. And in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees, which that's a pretty visceral image, right? Being surrounded by bees. They blazed me like a fire of thorns. If you're ever writing a superhero movie and you're looking for a good, weird superpower to give to your protagonist, the ability to shoot out a fire of thorns, I think would be a a fascinating one because I don't know what that looks like. But he goes on, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Peter's obviously got this psalm on his mind as he's doing this preaching. And what is all of his preaching going back to? The name of the Lord, which is Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what he keeps going back to because he knows the psalm. So what is his response in all this trial? What is his response in times of questioning you know, am I on the right track? Which way is up? Am I going to make it out of this? His response is simply calling on the name Jesus of Nazareth. And the beauty is the psalmist didn't know that name yet, but it knew that the name of the Lord was powerful. And now we actually have the name of the Lord, Jesus, Yeshua, which in Hebrew means God is saving. God saves. God is my salvation. And the name that means God is my salvation is actually the means by which God has saved us, which is pretty profound, which is where all of Peter's confidence comes from. And we go on to the second reading, and it's kind of beautiful. The second reading, you know, from the first epistle of John, the first letter of John, 
which by the way, we don't know a whole lot about. I mentioned it a little bit last week on the podcast. Um, we don't know. It actually never says John's name in it, but the earliest traditions say that this was penned by John. It um, is believed to actually be after John's gospel, which was already kind of late. John's gospel is believed to be maybe in the 90s. It was after the synoptic gospels. And then this is even after that. Um, so what that means is that John has actually had some time to grow and reflect and look back on all that he's experienced and seen and done and be able to kind of make some more sense out of that and have some prayer and reflection on that. And he writes this letter, you know, we don't even know exactly who this letter was written to. We do know that John was the bishop of Ephesus and the surrounding region. So there's good reason to believe it was written to them. Um, one of the things he's doing in the letter is trying to comfort them in the midst of this heresy. And in essence, what is heresy? It's trying to call on a name other than Jesus. We're trying to put our confidence in our own name or in a twisting of the name of Jesus or a misunderstanding or a, you know, some sort of a, a manipulation of that real actual truth rather than the name itself, rather than that identity of Jesus. And so John is using this letter to call his people back. But it's interesting reading John's reflections to his community in light of what John experienced in the first reading, being right next to Peter, doing all of these things, witnessing these things, speaking these words. And in his epistle, John says, Beloved, see what love the Father has bestowed on us, that we may be called the children of God, yet so we are. And what John is realizing and what he's unpacking here is it's not just about us calling on the name of Jesus. We do that. But in our calling on the name of Jesus, we too are called in response because this is a relationship. And I love that he says, we may be called the children of God, and yet so we are. It's not just, it's not merely a name that we're given. It's actually an identity. It's not just a label. We're not just called the children of God. We are the children of God. Namely, at least from the Catholic point of view, because we actually partake in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, of God. And, you know, of course, you are what you eat. So we actually take on the flesh and the blood of Jesus himself, which empowers us. And he goes on and he says, look, the reason the world doesn't know us is that they didn't know him. And when they look at us, they should see him. And if they, if they hate Jesus, they'll hate us too. And if they hate us, maybe they'll hate Jesus as well. We can't be separated from that. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. We don't know how the story is going to end up. We do know who is going to win, though. We do know who the victor is going to be. But we don't know what our full place in that is going to be yet. And that's why John, earlier in his life, could feel this total confidence to stand before crowds, to stand before trials, to stand before beatings and imprisonment, and to say, I can move forward in faith. I don't know how this story is going to end but I know who's Lord of the story. I know who the victor is. He says, we do know that when it is revealed, we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is, which is these great words of comfort. Again, for all of us who in whatever way that looks like in our life or John's life or Peter's life or the lives of the, your loved ones, the trials that we face, the beatings that we face, the, uh, you know, metaphorically, hopefully, but the, the dangers, the, the people that we don't know exactly how to face and how to speak to and how to move forward without getting beat up or without getting persecuted or without getting into trouble or deeper into the muck than we already are. And John's saying, well, we don't know how the story's going to end up, but we know who's writing the story. And so we can have confidence and we can take one step in front of the other because we know 
that we walk in no other confidence than the name of the Lord Jesus. And that name is not just a name that we call upon, but it's a name that's been given back to us. Which is the beauty, again, going back to the first reading, this is why Peter can tell that guy who can't walk that in the name of Jesus, I give you the, he's going to bestow the power to walk. Not because Peter's great, but because Peter actually has that identity now. And the idea is when people look at us who are believers, they should actually see Jesus. And they got this in the early church. They get this in Acts of the Apostles. And there's this understanding. It's fascinating. As the Acts of the Apostles goes on, I'm always struck by the fact that people will call upon the apostles and they'll tell them to come to their homes or their villages or their synagogues. And they'll say, look, we have this person who's ill or who has died or who needs some help. We know that Jesus isn't here anymore, but there's his followers. There's his disciples. And maybe they can be like a kind of Jesus to us. That's the assumption. That's what they think is most likely. And I don't know if we live in a world that looks at us and assumes, yeah, I see Jesus when I look at you. But would that they would. And what do we need to do to actually make ourselves more conformed to the image of God and the image of Jesus? All right, that takes us to the gospel. And the gospel is, uh, in a certain sense, the kind of wild card this time. And uh, I've been trying to, to fit this in. It is kind of beautiful. This is John chapter 10. And it's a very famous passage from John chapter 10 where Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. And I just want to read this part of it to you. It says, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. By the way, this passage falls hot on the heels of Jesus's very famous passage of saying the evil one comes to kill and destroy but I came to bring life and life to the full or life in abundance. And right on the heels of that, he says, well, how, you know, it's this presumption of, well, how is that life going to come about? He says, well, I'm the good shepherd and a good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. A hired man who's not a shepherd and whose sheep are not her own, he sees a wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf catches them and scatters them because, and this is because he works for pay and has no concern for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd. I know mine and mine know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I will lay down my life for the sheep. Um, It's hard to read this, especially in the midst and in, in light of the other readings, and not see a pretty hard accusation in those first lines of the religious leaders of Jesus's day. I'm a good shepherd and a good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. A hired man who's not really a shepherd, whose sheep are not really his own, sees the wolf coming, leaves them and runs away. And the wolf catches them. This is, in a certain sense, what the religious leaders of Jesus' time and the time of the apostles had done. They were bought off. They were hired hands at the behest of Caesar, who is the wolf, for Pete's sake. He's the one that's oppressing the people of God. And the people of God and their leaders and their priests and their teachers are actually working hand in hand with the wolf. And as a result, not just are the sheep, the people of Israel, being picked off in Jesus' time, but they're being led astray and they're wandering off in every direction because there's no one to guide them. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I came for them and not only for them. I actually came, look at what he says. He actually says, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. He says, yeah, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's true. I came for all of Israel, but I came for more than that because I'm not just the God of Israel. I'm the God of all of humanity, which means, you know, when I read this and I hear I have other sheep that don't belong to this fold, I'm hearing I have other sheep like Caesar himself, 
like Pontius Pilate, like the Gentiles, like the Romans, like the people in Ephesus who John is writing to, all of these outsiders, these other people that in the time of Jesus, people weren't really considering how they fit into the plan of salvation history or into the family of God. And God and Jesus is saying, they do. I'm their shepherd as well, because that's what a real shepherd is. And my flock is so big, you have no idea, even to the point of needing to shepherd Caesar himself and his minions and his cohort. But not only that, you know, you can also read this and focus just on the Gentiles and the outsiders. Now, Jesus came to establish his church and make it universal. But the other thing he's also saying is, yeah, within that fold and within those flocks that you don't quite recognize are also the chief priests and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees and the commanders of the police of the temple precincts. All of these folks, even the ones that you read the story and you're like, oh, those are the bad guys. Those are the thieves who come to steal and destroy. Yeah, they do. But they're still his sheep. And even if they're sheep who are rebellious and don't recognize and refuse to listen, that doesn't make them any less of his sheep. And it's hard to not read John 10 in conjunction with Luke 15, which is that story of the lost sheep, when Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the one. And the question that I think we have to ask ourselves is, who is that one? Are you the one? Is your family member who's so far away from God and the mind of the church that it's unimaginable that they would ever come back? Is that the one? Is it the political leader that you really hate and love to rail against? Is that the one? Who is the person in your life that we need to reflect back on and say, wow, Jesus is actually the shepherd of that person's life too. And I certainly pray that they will allow themselves to be found by him. I pray that they will have the grace to hear the name of the Lord Jesus, which has the power to make the lame walk, which has the power to bring the dead back to life, to make the deaf hear, the blind see. That's the whole point of these readings. It's the point of the first reading, for sure. And Peter's lines, as he's been saying in the previous couple Sundays, that it's not too late, even if you're the ones who crucified the Messiah, it's not too late to come back. Because he's still your shepherd, even if you killed your shepherd. Guess what? Your shepherd rose from the dead. And your shepherd is still looking for you. And you have only to turn toward him. And he will come a-running. Because that's what a good shepherd does. Which is a really comforting message, I think, on this fourth Sunday of Easter. And he goes on and he says, This is why the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. Nobody takes it from me. I freely lay it down on my own, which is a really important theological note for Jesus. Jesus didn't lose the battle on Good Friday. Jesus didn't lose at the Passion. Jesus didn't give up or somehow get overtaken or overrun. And John makes it very clear. He says, no, I didn't lose. I laid it down freely, which means I won. I chose to do this, to show forth my power even over death. And if I can do that, then what that means is that in my name, you can actually have the confidence to face anything, any fear, any temptation, any struggle, any baggage, any whatever you're possibly facing. And as John points out, we don't know how that's always going to end, but we know who's leading us and we know who wrote the story. So that is probably a good place to leave it for today. We will be back next week. And until then, please keep us in your prayers. See you guys. 
The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at lankyguys.org. You can also find the Aquinas Institute at thomascenter.org slash AICT. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll see you next time.